David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Uh, having spent the first couple of talks discussing the Tanaitic period, two talks on two centuries, tonight I've got to attempt to do three centuries to discuss this period in Jewish history that we call the Amoraic. The Amoraic, which is the second half of, not the second half, but the second part of the Talmudic. The Talmudic goes from zero to 500. The first 200 years is the Tanaitic. And the second part, from around 200 to 500, is the Amoraic. We're dealing with the Amoraic. So I'm going to go 200, which is roughly where we got up to last week. And I'm going to try and get us up to 500. Uh, no, 300, 400. And I've got to tell you something about this. This period is very, very complex. I can't tell you enough about how complex it is, and I'm hoping to give over a feeling of its complexity. If at the end of the talk you feel complexed, then you've got the talk. But what I want to do is draw a rough schematic, because it's damn interesting. By the time we get to from, but you've got to understand, from here to here produces a different kind of world. And we produce a different kind of literary and intellectual product. This is how we move from the Mishnah, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with the Mishnah, at least in some form. You've listened to me explain what it is. You know that it's thousands of little paragraphs in Hebrew, which is the initial written code of the oral law that appeared at the end of the Tanaitic period under Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince. It was produced in the land of Israel. And it is a code. And how we get from there to this thing by here, we've got this thing called the Gemara. And the Mishnah plus the Gemara equals the Talmud. So we've written the Talmud by the end of this period, but we start off with just this series of effectively a code of thousands of succinct statements about Jewish practice and how we get to the Talmud. But I want to set that deeply within what's happening in the empires and the political environment around us. I want to remind us before we start that this world I'm talking about is very, very still much divided in two. There are two fundamental domains. One is the Roman Empire and the other is what we would loosely call the Persian. It's actually, by the time we open this era, it's the Parthian. It is still the Parthian. They have, the Parthians are a royal family that have been ruling this empire in Persia for hundreds of years now. That's all about to come crashing down. They're about to have a major dynasty change. That's one of the things we're going to look at. But as we enter this period, we still have these two fundamental domains. And of course, the land of Israel, where the Mishnah was produced, is under the control of the Roman Empire. Because we know 
that it was only a few decades after our rebellion against Hadrian and Bar Kokhba and all of that, that we actually produced the Mishnah. So that's our setting and that's where we got up to. And just one more thing I want to tell you. I can see people yawning already, but don't worry. I will start content. But I just, re I, re I really have to say this because there's going to, some of you are going to be sitting there going, oh, I can't believe it. I can't believe he didn't talk about this person. I can't believe he didn't talk about that person. In the Mishnah, and when I say the Mishnah, I actually mean Tanaitic literature generally. That is, the recordings of the sages of the Jewish people up to this point. In the Tanaitic literature, which includes not just the Mishnah, but also the Tosefta, and uh, a number, and all the bright art, all the different statements that we have collated, and not all of them are included in the Mishnah. The Tosefta, which is an addition to the Mishnah of Tanaitic material, is like three times the size of the Mishnah. But in all of that literature, we have probably recorded sages, uh, recorded statements of around about somewhere between 250 and 300 individual sages. Of those, there's probably about 50 or 60 that are very famous. And of those, there's probably about a dozen that would really, really be familiar to just about everybody in this room. Yep. If I say Hillel, if I say Rabbi Akiva, if I say Rabbi Meir, if I say Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, if I say Rabban Gamliel, and those who've been to these talks, we could add a few more. Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanan, Rabbi Yezeb ben Hirkanos, and so on. But there's over 250 names of the Tanaim. In this period, in the literature of the Amoraic period, which includes two Talmuds, and we will obviously explain what that means, we've got... Uh, all, I mean, various estimates have been done. I don't think anyone's got an exact amount, but it's around about 1,300 individually recorded sages who were living in this period. So, first of all, that's staggering. When else in Jewish history could we point to a 300 year period where we know the names and recorded statements of 1,300 rabbis in that period? Maybe, maybe the last couple of hundred years from now, we could dig around, we could find that, but only because we're very close to it and we have a lot of recorded history. But this is astonishing. But you've got to realize that of that, those 1,300 rabbis, if I'm giving a talk, looking at the historical overview of this, I can't talk about all of them. I can't even talk barely about 10 of them. I could maybe talk about six or seven of them. The important, the ones where when you're sitting at that dinner party and the Amoraic period comes up, these are the ones you need to know to not look silly. Maybe I could talk about those. So please forgive me already from the outset. The world is divided. Now, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi creates the Mishnah. Now, you've got to publish the Mishnah at some point. Yep. It's like, yesterday wasn't the publication day of the Mishnah, and tomorrow is after the publication of the Mishnah, so the publication of the Mishnah is today. And at that point you draw a line. So some people are going to make it into the Mishnah, 
because they've been around, they're sages, either they've lived in a former era or they are senior rabbis at the time of the Mishnah, colleagues of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, and they find themselves in the Mishnah at the time of publication. But you're going to have younger scholars who are just as brilliant, perhaps even just as learned, who because they haven't quite reached that level of seniority, are going to find themselves outside the Mishnah on the day that it's produced. Everybody follow? And it is one such figure who becomes the most significant person at the very beginning of this era. He is the transition from the Mishnah to the Gemara. He's the transition from the Tanaitic to the Amoraic. His name is Abba Aricha. <laughs> and we know him as simply Rav. And Abba Aricha was born, I mean, I, his name is also Abba Barebo. We don't know if Aricha was a, a family name or whether it was Aricha was what they called him because it's Aramaic, like Hebrew, it means long. So he may have been very tall. But he was known as Abba Aricha, Abba Barebo. And he actually was born here in Babylonia. Remember the whole Persian Empire, which is kind of more or less ruled from Iran, but includes everything today that we would consider it would certainly include Iraq, and Iraq, which is Babylon, is the dynamic new center. Not just new, it's got elements that are very, very old, but it's having a whole resurgence. Whereas, whereas the Jews of the land of Israel and in the Roman Empire generally have just gone through a couple of centuries of serious legitimate crap, the Jews in the Persian Empire have more or less been able to thrive and have existed in more or less an environment of tolerance. I'm going to, more or less, but I'm going to talk about what that means in a moment. But Abba Richa came from Babylonia as a young man and he studied with the great rabbis of the last generation of the Mishnah, but he was only around 25 when they actually put out the Mishnah. In fact, there's a very famous statement you'll find going through the Talmud that says, Rav Tana Upalig that in some cases, Rav Abaricha, even though he belonged to the next era of Jewish history, is considered a Tana and can, you can use his opinion against a Mishnaic opinion. But he's actually on the cusp. Now what he does, I mean his career is overwhelmingly interesting in itself, but what in essence he does is that after the completion of the Mishnah, he decided to return to Babylonia, to Iraq effectively. Now in here, somewhere, is Iraq. And as you know, that thing that we call Mesopotamia, Babylonia, Iraq, the real guts of that is sitting in that very fertile area between the Tigris and the Euphrates. This was literally dotted, pixelated with Jewish communities, some bigger, some smaller. And four of those Jewish communities are going to go on and acquire tremendous fame. How do you get on the map in Jewish history? I'm not having a fundamentalist moment, but it is true. How do you get on the map in Jewish history? You end up on the map of world Jewish history when you start producing Torah scholarship. You've got to start producing people who are creating centers of Judaism that are influencing through their scholarship and through their Torah the whole direction of the Jewish world. 
That's going to seriously start happening in Babylonia, basically through four or five key places. But they're all dotted in this area. So when I talk about them, don't say to me, where in Iraq is that place? Because they're all bunched and you can look on the maps and you can see exactly where they were. But Rav goes, we call him Rav, and it's very interesting because the last of the Tanaim, the last of the Tanaim who puts together the Mishnah, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, we call him Rabbi. And every Tana has the title Rabbi. But the guy who starts the Amoraic, Abaricha, who we call Rav, Every rabbi of the Talmudic, of the Amoraic period has the title Rav. But there's only one just Rav. And Rav goes and he goes back to Babylonia and he goes to the Torah center in Babylonia, which at that time was a town called, and we've mentioned it before in a different context, in talk number one, Nahardea. Now you remember Nahardea from talk number one in this series because Nahardea a couple of centuries before had had an independent Jewish state there for a while if you recall but it was a it was a real center of Jewish learning in Babylonia and Rav went back to Nahardea but he took with him and this is the important part he took with him a new educational technology which was a curriculum which was the Mishnah in Babylonia, they were studying the Torah and they were studying the practices of Jewish law, but they were doing it more or less according to an institution which in Babylonia was known as the Sidra. Ah, oh. that means that every week, according to the section of the Torah that was being studied, they would look at the laws and the mitzvot and the underpinning ideas around that section. That's how they studied the whole Torah. Rav arrives in round about 220 with this new curriculum, the Mishnah. We are now going to study according to topic. Rav only stayed in Nahardea for a while and he then went and established his own yeshiva in a different town called Sura. Now we have two places. Why did Rav go to Sura? One of the reasons why Rav went to Sura is because Nahardea already had a ginormous sage. And that sage, the other really, really big figure at the beginning of the Amoraic, who is a counterpart to Rav, also in Babylonia, and his name was... Shmuel, not Shmuel the prophet from the Bible. This is Shmuel, the great sage of Nahardea. And Shmuel is an extremely interesting person. Different kind of intellectual growth, different type of learning. Whereas Rav had become very, very steeped in the learning of the sages of the Mishnah in Palestine. In Babylonia, spiritual leaders and those being educated were encouraged to study a wide range of topics, even outside strictly religious parameters. Shmuel was famous 
as more or less a what we would call a proto-scientist of his day. He certainly knew astronomy and we have that recorded a number of times in the Talmud. Very familiar with the uh, star charts and patterns of his age and uh, medicine and a few other things. That also sets up a kind of a model going forward for right for the next thousand years of kind of the ideal rabbi who is not just a sage in Torah but knows everything. And Shmuel had very, very good relations, as did Rav, but particularly Shmuel. These two, who are the beginnings of the Amoraic period, had very good relations with the local rulers. And I'm going to talk about that. We know that Shmuel was uh, quite good friends with Shapur I, who we're going to talk about. And so in terms of implanting them in an environment which is completely different. Here, getting on with the emperors and the authoritarian secular rulers is constantly a struggle. But in Persia, it was a bit of a different story up until here. And it was a natural thing. Quite some time before, the Parthians, the Parthians had recognized the leaders of the Jewish community and had raised them up in honor and dignity so that in fact we already have a kind of royal family happening in Babylonia, which is the family of the Resh Galuta, the head of the exile, which is in parallel with a similar type of arrangement in the land of Israel, the role of the Nasi, which was a descendant of the house of Hillel. Remember that in the last two weeks, we've looked at how the house of Hillel has been the nominal head of Jewry in Israel going from Hillel through the Gamliels and the Shimons and more Gamliels and more Shimons. And that is the house of Hillel. That is the house of the Nasi. And in Babylonia, which also claimed its descent from King David, we have the house of the Resh Galuta, the exilarch, the head of the exile. Back in the land of Israel, the Mishnah is also being studied by the next generation of scholars after the completion of the Mishnah. And they also are a very important part of the Amoraic picture. The big figure at the very beginning of this era, once the Sanhedrin in Israel is established in the land of Israel, in Tiberias, is of course Rav Yochanan. Rav Yochanan bar Napacha. And that's the whole story is when you read Rav Yochanan, whose brother-in-law was Resh Lakish, and all of that uh, dynamic that is going on in the land of Israel, especially surrounded around Tiberias, the Sanhedrin is still going. But the conditions aren't as conducive as they are in Babylonia. So the Amoraic period gets underway. It's got two places in Babylonia. It's got Nahardea, it's got Sura, we've got Shmuel, we've got Rav. And they are starting to give over the recorded statements of their teachers and what they have heard. And these statements that are coming from the Mishnah, which is now a definitive document, are starting to be compared to each other and are starting to be set up. And questions, they're starting to ask the most fundamental questions, filling in the gaps in the Mishnah. Well, the Mishnah is very clear on this particular case, but what happens if it's not quite like this particular case? So we need to find 
other statements of the Tanaim that can fill in the gaps. Plus, we'll come up with a few of our own statements that we've heard. This is very early in the Amoraic, and we are collecting traditions that are being held by people from the Tanaim that we may not have in our records that could shed light on some of the discussions we are having. There is an entire literature of Tanaitic material that was left out of the Mishnah, which is known as Braita. The word Braita actually means, in Aramaic, outside. Abra, outside. So this was outside the Mishnah, but nevertheless, it has the canonic strength of the Tanaitic material. It has the same weight as the Mishnah. It just, for whatever reason, wasn't included. And so they are starting to collate those and compare them, but also, very, very importantly, transmit them to the next generations. But before we get carried away, the Amoraic period is up and running, but we now need to talk a shtickle politics, because I've got to tell you what's going on. And it's not simple. Round about here, there is a decisive break in the Persian continuum, which is called the end of the Parthian and the beginning of the Sassanid Empire. Now, you might say, oh, well, no, so they changed families. So they changed. It wasn't a name change. It was a fundamental political, ideological power shift within the Persian Empire. This one family had been in power for hundreds of years. Now there's a completely different power dynamic, which we now call the Sassanid Empire. And that goes right here. The last, the last of the Parthian kings, who basically lost the Parthian Empire for his family, was Artaban, or Artabanus V. Artaban is mentioned a few times in the Talmud. He was the last of the Parthian kings, and he was a friend, I mean, friend, you know, friendly, with Rav. And that's that famous, that famous story, which also has echoes of something we spoke about before with Onkelos, but it has famous story when, when Artaban sent Rav a gift, and he sent him a really, really precious pearl or jewel. And Rav needed to reply and send Artaban, the emperor, the Parthian emperor, back a gift. And what did he send him? A mezuzah. So Artaban flips out, goes, like, I sent you this really expensive jewel, and you sent me basically a cloth with, I could get for 20 bucks. Like, what are you talking about? And he said, oh, my gift is much more valuable than yours. Because your gift, I have to spend all my time protecting it. But the mezuzah... You put it on the outside of the house and it protects you. That's a famous story, and it's, uh, but it shows, it's a story that, although a bit shrouded in legend, shows that there was definitely a relationship between the late Parthian emperors and, uh, and, and, the, early, uh, and the early Amoraim. But then we get the Sassanids coming in. Now... It's not my function in Caulfield Shul to talk about Avodah Zorah, but I love it. 
we have to go a little bit into another religion to really understand this. And that other religion is the main religion of Persia at the time. And that religion is, of course, Zoroastrianism. Zoroastrianism. And, you know, this is not a lecture, unfortunately, on Zoroastrianism, but basically, Zoroastrianism is a, it's been described as a cosmogonic dualism inside an eschatological monotheism. What that effectively means is, is that Zoroastrianism, and it's important to understand this because of the development of the next few hundred years, you need to understand this. Zoroaster had been wandering around hundreds of years earlier. This is a religion that had grown and grown and grown. This is a religion that was ginormous. This is not a religion that would have seen itself in the year 2018 going, where are the Zoroastrians? This was a religion that had all sorts of different factions and upheavals and revolutions. A religion that controlled huge parts of the world. And it basically believed that there were two fundamental forces in the world. It's a dualism. There's light and there's darkness. And these two fundamental forces are fighting it out. And those who say that Zoroastrianism is ultimately monotheistic say that because Zoroastrianism believed in its pure form that at the end of the day, the light will win. Therefore, ultimately, really, there's only one thing going on. But it's not so clear. Zoroastrians are very, 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 very big on fire. They constantly have fire going. They worship fire. They've got a fire lit all the time. There are Zoroastrian communities still today, dotted in Iran and northern India. They still exist, but nowhere like they did before. Now, Artaban, the last of the Parthian king, was, of course, a Zoroastrian, but he was like a personal Zoroastrian. Like, that's my religion, but the Parthian Empire tolerates many religions. But the new Sassanid kings, when they came in, having wrestled the empire from the Parthians, attempted to impose Zoroastrianism as the state religion. And this fundamentally changed the nature of Jewish communities and other minorities living in the Persian Empire, because Zoroastrianism was now going to be the official religion. It's really, 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 really interesting the coincidence that is happening and the parallel that is happening while Zoroastrianism is becoming the state religion. I'm talking like over the next 100, 200 years, becoming the enforced state religion of Persia and this entire empire is precisely parallels the rise and enforcement as a state religion of Christianity within the Roman Empire. Prior to those events, prior to the third century, both of these empires would have been considered, even by our standards, tolerant. There were many, many different religions. And so long as you paid your taxes and you obeyed the law, your religion was more or less your own business. It sounds like a very modern idea, but that's the way the ancient world was run. Now, the first of the big kings, the really ones that really 
are mentioned a lot in Jewish historical records and in literature of the Parthian Empire. Very, very, very important king. He's actually sitting here. And that is a king called Shapur or Shapur. And we now know him as Shapur the first, because there's going to be two Shapurs. He's Shapur the first. Or as he's known in Persian history, and remember the Persians take their history very seriously, even now. He is known as Shapur the Great. And he really, really was a dude. Shapur the first was a huge king and ruled totally right throughout a lot of this century, about 30, over 30 years from around 240 to after 270. And his reign was very influential on what was happening with Jewish communities in Persia because he was certainly relative to what was going to come later in the Sassanid kings. He made a point of being extremely tolerant. He said, I'm Zoroastrian. The state religion is Zoroastrianism, but I'm going to go along with this idea that the Parthians had. People can have their own religions and we'll even help them with their religions if we feel that it's beneficial to society. But it's extremely important to be tolerant. And for that reason, it's no coincidence that he's probably mentioned more than just about any other ruler right throughout the Talmud. We know him in Gemara, he is referred to, and some of you might have seen this term but not realized it actually applies to Shapur I. He's known as Shvormalka. Shapur the king was called in the Gemara Shvormalka. Now, we just have to go sideways for a moment. And of course, during the time of Shvormalka, Nahardea and Sura are thriving. We're now transmitting to the next two or three generations throughout this century. And Sura is going to go from Rav, who's going to hand down to Rav Huna, and Rav Huna is going to hand down to Rav Chista. All of these, for people who study the Talmud, these are very big names. And these are the first generations of Surah. Nahardea, unfortunately, Nahardea gets a bit kaputted. Because Nahardea, during the reign of Shapur I, gets destroyed. And who destroys it? Not Shapur. The destruction of Nahardea is a fascinating chapter in Jewish history that once again we can only skirt over. But the basic facts are these. As you may know, Rome has gone through several different emperors. And, everyone's, and we looked at this last week in the preceding century that some emperors are expanders and some are consolidators. But every few generations, you'll get a Roman emperor wake up one morning and go, oh, I think I'll attack the Persian Empire. I'll make some conquests over there. And one of the biggest and most reckless of those projects 
was under in around during the reign of Shapur I was the Roman Emperor Valerian. I'm looking around the room to see whether people are registering when I say Valerian. You know how anyone ever watch poker on TV? You know, like professional high stakes poker? It's fascinating to watch. And you know when they go, when they think they've got a good hand and they go, I'm going all in? All in. Valerian went all in. He took the whole Roman army. He took the whole Roman army and he launched it into the Persian Empire. And Shapur I said, game on. And at the famous Battle of Edessa, the Battle of Edessa actually is one of the real turning point battles in, in history. It's fascinating. But the Battle of Edessa, Valerian didn't just lose, he lost the, ent the entire Roman army. All of it was surrounded and imprisoned. It is the only time in the whole history of Rome that the emperor himself, because Valerian led the, led, the, led the army, that the emperor himself was taken prisoner. The emperor of Rome was taken prisoner at Edessa. This was a massive defeat for the Roman Empire. However, one individual sitting here in Syria when the Persian, he saw the Persians were busy and this now creates a vacuum on the eastern flank of the Roman Empire decided that he would support the Roman Empire using his own armies he is running a country state which was a part of the Roman Empire kind of independent kind of part called Palmyra Palmyra has a number of different intersections with Jewish history. Palmyra, and went on to become the Palmarine Empire, started by Odonatus. And Odonatus, in the light of Valerian's defeat, decided to take this whole area. And for a while, the Palmarine Empire basically ruled that, basically from Turkey through to Egypt. It ruled the Eastern Mediterranean. Now, Rome was very, very grateful for that, of course. So they propped up Odonatus' empire. Odonatus eventually was killed, as so often happens to these kinds of people. And when Odonatus was killed, his wife took over. And his wife, we're going to talk about two women tonight, but this is the first one. His wife is very, very interesting. This is a very big figure. We could do... You could do, we could do an entire other talk just on this person. This is not, I'm going to talk about her for a minute, but this is a huge figure. His wife's name was Zenobia. Now you go, okay, David, why are you wasting my time? You're telling me about the wife of some guy who in the end of the third century propped up, took the Eastern Mediterranean, helped the Romans, after the defeat of Valerian, what's that got to do with us? Because Zenobia, as empress of this entire region, according to numerous historians, converted to Judaism. She is certainly 
mentioned in the Talmud in a number of places. Now, it is possible that she didn't convert to Judaism. Most of the historians writing about this are writing about it a few decades later and they are Christians. And saying that someone converted to Judaism is a shtickle insult. But nevertheless, she had a complex relationship with the rabbis. We do know from Talmud Yerushalmi, Masechet Trumot, we do know that rabbis approached Zenobia about a particular issue to do with freeing some captives. And the famous statement of Zenobia to these rabbis who came from Babylonia, Syria, Samoraim, and she said to them, your God does miracles, let him do miracles for you and free this person. She wasn't, didn't sound like someone particularly disposed towards the rabbis. And other historians are coming along and saying, oh, that's because she was a convert. They didn't treat her nicely. But there's all sorts of different things going on there. But she had a complex relationship and she ruled over the land of Israel. We have a number of archaeological sites of evidence that make this picture very, once again, very, very complex. Of course, the story doesn't end there for Zenobia. It's not our story tonight, but Zenobia goes on to become this great big kind of icon in history about women and political liberation and so on. She's like a Middle Eastern Bodhika. People are looking at me. Does that ring a bell? You know what I mean by that, don't you? Good. So, in fact, in fact, and you're going to sit there going, oh, how's that relevant to me? In fact, just a few years ago, there was a very, very popular television program in Syria because Zenobia is seen as like this huge figure in Syrian nationalist history that was a remake of the Zenobia story, but set in contemporary Israel and Palestine. And the Palestinians are trying to throw off the Western imperialist yoke the way that Zenobia was leading this nationalist on, on behalf of Syria before Syria was even thought of. It's a fascinating uh, way in which history weaves in and out. But we know Zenobia because of her interrelations with the rabbis. Now the other thing that happens, and I just want, I should have mentioned this earlier, but just on religion, but I just want to make this clear because everything we're talking now is really just setting the background, is that during the time of Shapur I, Shvor Malka, due to his tremendous tolerance, he didn't just tolerate existing religions, but uniquely for an ancient world ruler, he tolerated new religions. And there was a very big new religion that popped up in the middle of the 200s. And that, that is the prophet Mani. Mani, who started what we now call Manichaeism. Now Manichaeism, Manichaeism is many things. It's also deeply dualistic, which is why Manichaeism is kind of like a synonym for dualism. They believed in, but there's without the monotheism. Manichaeism is hardcore. What is that? That's whiteboard. I was about to drink whiteboard cleaner. I thought that looks fun. It's pink. It's probably nice. Unbelievable. Can you imagine what would happen? I'm standing here having drunk whiteboard cleaner, and then you'd go, you know, that would be interesting. Now, 
as I said, this talk is complex, but bear with me. Money's ideas are very, very dualistic. Without this kind of, we don't know which way it's going to go. Maybe darkness will win. Maybe light will win. One of the things about Manny's view was he was extremely anti-religion. Now, I know that sounds strange. He starts a religion, but he's very anti-authoritarian religion. And he, because the Zoroastrianism by his time, classical Zoroastrianism, had become very institutionalized. And Manny, who came from that background, well, kind of from that background, because Manny was actually born into a very, very unique, bizarro, el weirdo community of Jewish Christians that were living in the north of the Persian Empire, called the Elkasites, which philologists have worked out comes from the words el kaseh meaning god hidden the hidden the hiding of god and they had their own weird theology many came out of that mixed it with the local zoroastrianism and basically said well you know we've had went to india came back from india said we've had buddha we've had zoroaster we've had jesus and now we have me and he and very very and he didn't like texts because texts, you know, I mean, I'm always saying, oh, it's a shame they wrote it down. Texts are the beginning of congealed religion. It's no good. Well, that's very maniistic to say that. But he was very, very fervent. And nevertheless, Shapur I, who said to Mani, I'm sorry to disappoint you, because Mani actually devoted the one text he did write to Shapur. But he said, thank you, very flattering, but... It's not for me, but I'm going to tolerate it. I'm going to allow it. So this is an example of how under Shapur I... Uh, now, why did I go into all that? Sorry, thank you for keeping me back on track. Is because Odonatus of Palmyra had destroyed Nahardea. And so the students of the school of, of school, the Shivot of Nahardea, and particularly the main student of Shmuel, who we know as Rav Yehuda, or Rav Yehuda Bar Yechezkel, went and started a new yeshiva in a new place to rebuild what had formerly been Nahardea, and that new place was Pombadita. So now we have, we had Nahardea, now we've got Sura, and we've got Pombadita. And of course, Rav Yehuda Bar Yechezkel is going to pass down to a very, very, very important student of his called Rabba Bar Nachmeni. You don't have to remember all these terms. I said I would only mention a few names just to keep me honest. But the reality is that we're talking hundreds and hundreds of names. But Rabba was the great, Rabba Bar Nachmeni, who we know as Rabba, was the great student of Rav Yehuda of that next generation building up Pumbadita. And then his students, the next generation, went on to become very, very significant. And we have to spend a few minutes talking about them, because by the time we get to here, we are in the third generation of Pumbadita, which had taken over from Nahardea, and we're talking about the first half of the fourth century, from around up until 350, the two big figures that are scholars emergent from that school of Pumbadita are Abba ben Yosef Barhama, 
who we know as Rava and his companion Abaye. Abaye had actually was actually a nephew of Rabbi Bar Nachmani who'd raised him as an orphan. And those two went on to really, really create the foundations of what we call Talmudic dialectics. By the time you get to Rava and Abaya, and that is why when you open the Babylonian Talmud today, you will see an argument between Rava and Abaya on anything to do with Jewish law on almost certainly you know every second or third page of the entire Talmud you're going to find a discussion between Rava and Abaya is because they are already existing in a framework where the Amoraic project is already a century old and they have managed to collate not only all of the material but also of the analysis the material on the material they are already pitting the opinions of previous Amoraim and their understanding of the Mishnah against each other to search for the underlying principles of the Mishnah. The Mishnah is still their primary text. But now we're not just looking at comparing traditions, we're now searching using dialectics. That's question and answer, question and answer, constantly pushing an argument forward to try and isolate the fundamental principles about why why a wording was used or why a law appears or what is the principle behind its application remember this about jewish texts if you've never looked at a jewish text it's useful to know this before you open one especially in the talmudic arena and they don't always tell you this and sometimes it takes people years to work this out but the reality is is this is the fundamental idea the talmud presupposes an infinite number of possibilities. An infinite number of ways in which something could be expressed and applied. That is their starting point. Their starting point is not zero. Their starting point is infinity. If that's the case, then why did they choose this particular wording out of all the other possible wordings or laws or applications or principles that could have been stated on any matter of law. And in doing so, they drive further and further into dialectics. These were really established at the, this already third generation of Pombadita by Abaya and Rava. And then Rava goes, Rava goes, because Abaya is really big and Rava is really big, it's like you know, it's probably enough room physically, but not necessarily conceptually for the two of them in the one town. So Rava goes and establishes his own academy at a town that's going to become extremely important in the late Amoraic. And that is... So we've got... We've, we, I said there would be four. So we've had Nahardea, Sura, Pombadita, and... Very good. Mechaza. He establishes, and they're all, they're all in this axis here in Babylonia. Now, just on the subject of what's going on in the Persian Empire throughout this century politically, it's really quite extraordinary because for most of the century, from around 309 to 380, over 70 years, there's one king. And that is Shapur II. 
And Shapur II is a very interesting king because he's the only king in history. Check this out. He is the only king in history who was king his entire life. He was born king. In fact, they crowned him in utero. Yes, but they really did. They put the crown physically on his mother's womb and crowned him. How they knew he was going to be a boy, I don't know. But they crowned him in utero and he was born king. And he remained king. And that's the only time in history that we know of, in anyone's history, that that has happened to someone. And Shapur II, like his grandfather Shapur I, was more or less tolerant, but not as tolerant. He had to deal with some fairly significant pressure from Zoroastrian priests and religious classes that were pressing for not just to make Zoroastrianism the state religion, but actually to enforce it. Nevertheless, he was tolerant of a number of minorities. Now, part of that is because of the following. And I'm going to tell you something, and I'm going to warn you that if you look into this, and some of you will, because it's very, very interesting, is that you will find that once again, it is, it is greased with complexity. According to quite a number of historical opinions, Shapur II's mother was Jewish. We know her name, but I'm about to tell you why it's not so simple. Her name, and you can look at it because it's, she's a historical figure, is Ifra Hormiz. And Ifra Hormiz, but before you start, before you start getting clever with Ifra, let me, I've got to tell you something. There are two distinct historical views of Ifra Hormiz and they don't seem to be talking to each other. One view says that Ifra Hormiz was the mother of Shapur I and the other is that she was the mother of Shapur II. Now the Talmud, that's historical, that's not in the Talmud, that's from other historical sources, but the Talmud tells us, talks about Ifra Hormiz and talks about that as the mother of the Emperor Shvor. So whilst that's great that that confirms to us from the Talmud that that was in fact the case, the Talmud's not clear on which Shvor it was. But most historians say that she was the mother of Shapur II. And what's fascinating more about her is that although she had an extremely close relationship with the rabbis of Babylonia, with the great Amoraim, we're not entirely certain that she was Jewish, as opposed to being incredibly fascinated by Judaism. What we do know from sources in the Gemara is that she would have all sorts of interesting dialogues with the rabbis. On one occasion, she sent the rabbis some money and she said, give this towards a big mitzvah without specifying what the big mitzvah 
is. And there's a beautiful, beautiful Talmudic discussion that follows based on the donation of Ifrahon Mirz to a mitzvah rabbah. What is a big mitzvah? What is a great mitzvah? And a big discussion on what they were going to give the money to. And eventually, in the course of the discussion, they arrive at what it's for. Anyone know what it is? The freeing of slaves. And how they worked that out was because they took another, it's a classic Gemara thing, they took a, an unrelated Talmudic statement, an unrelated Tanaitic statement, which tells you, which tells you that we don't levy taxes on orphans even for the redeeming of slaves. We don't tax orphans. So they worked out that the taxing of slaves was a big mitzvah. No, it's a whole Gemara, I'm not going into it. In another place, in Gemara Nida, and this is weird, and I'm not going into this in too much detail, for obvious reasons, but she sends them, she sends them a question in Nida. She sends them uh, a blood-stained cloth that apparently is hers to ask them whether she in fact is Nida, whether she is menstruating. And rabbis until today are answering questions like that based on the various distinctions of various uh, markings and whatever but she's doing that so obviously you think if she's not Jewish then she's pretty obsessed with Judaism if she's if she's doing that but they didn't say to her oh you're obsessed with Judaism you know leave us alone they answered her questions and then they tried to go out of their way to impress her so there's a very very fascinating connection between the royal household of the royal Sassanid household and the rabbis and these are playing out right throughout this period where things are becoming dynamic in Babylonia with all of these and there's a return to Nahardea Nahardea gets rebuilt Sura gets rebuilt up Sura gets rebuilt up you mentioned Ravashi Ravashi's coming along at the end of the 300s to re under a student of Rav Papa and they are building up, and in fact, we're going to talk about Ravashi in a few moments, but <laughs> it's impossible to talk about the 300s in Jewish history without me telling you about the events. And I have to do that. And some of you are looking at me going, oh, what events are they, David? And some of you are looking at me going, oh, I know what events you mean. Because meanwhile, back in the Roman Empire, while all of this is happening, meanwhile, back in the Roman Empire... First of all, as you know, in the Roman Empire, I mean, for the, first, for, the, for the most of the 200s, Christians are not having a great time in the Roman Empire. Neither are Jews, but maybe even Jews are doing a little better. Christians are getting persecuted until towards the end of the 200s and some of the Christians, some of the empires, emperors start getting a little friendly towards Christians and eventually, by the time you get into the 300s, you have the arrival on the scene of Constantine. Now, Constantine is an enormously important emperor in the whole span of the Roman Empire for two fundamental reasons. One is because he's effectively the guy that's going to go ahead and Christianize it. He's not himself necessarily a Christian. His mother is a Christian. And his mother visited the land of Israel and pointed out all sorts of Christian holy sites. But he is extremely disposed towards Christianity. He sets up the Council of Nicaea, which is going to be a big, you know, uh, conference of all the authorities of the Christian church. They're going to lay down some of the fundamental principles of the Christian church. 
And basically, by the end of Constantine's reign, Christianity is now fully legit and is going to, he fights wars in the name of Christianity and Rome is going to be Christian. But the other very, very significant thing that Constantine does that makes him such an important emperor is because he establishes here in what is today Istanbul, Constantinople, a new capital of the Roman Empire. It has occurred to more than one person by now that Rome, the centre, the kind of the weight, the power weight, the economic weight of Rome is no longer over here in Italy, but that Rome is really a conglomeration of a huge range of peoples and lands and economies and its weight has shifted far more to the east and it makes sense to actually centralise the empire in Tur what is today Turkey rather than Italy. That's a very, very big momentous thing because that's going to be the beginning of what is eventually going to break the Roman Empire into two. Because by the time you get uh, less than a century beyond that, you're going to have a Western Empire focused in Rome and an Eastern Empire focused in Byzantium, which is what Constantinople becomes. And that is about to happen. But after Constantine, basically, basically, Rome is Christian, the whole of the Roman Empire, and not in a good way, as far as the Jews are concerned. Once the Christians are the state religion and they are in power, they are enforcing all sorts of uncomfortabilities upon Jewish communities. Now... What would it be like to live in an era where you are accustomed to secular rulers of big empires being ambivalent towards Jews and suddenly someone comes along who completely upsets the apple cart of the political system totally changes the way people think about things politically and socially, is regarded as mad by everyone, but is a fantastic friend of the Jewish people and of Israel. What would it be like to live in an era like that? Such a person arrives in the Roman Empire in the middle of the 300s in the form of... You know this. I'm going like this because I'm assuming you, you do know who I'm talking about. 360 sees the arrival of Julian, who is known in history because, of course, it was Christian historians who gave him this name, Julian the Apostate. Julian comes to the throne in 360. Gore Vidal wrote a very, very famous novel about him. Julian the Apostate. And Julian the arrives, he kind of probably would have liked that title anyway. And he says, he's an emperor. And he turns around, he says to the whole of the Roman Empire, 30, 40 years after Constantine has already established Christianity as the official religion, he turns around and he goes, nah, I don't like Christianity. Not only am I not Christian, I actually don't like it. 
It's a totalizing, universalizing, homogenizing piece of yuck. I don't like it. I want to reinstitute paganism. Because under paganism, we had tremendous tolerance. And frankly, I think the reason why the whole Roman Empire is going down the toilet is because we've abandoned the Roman gods. And I want to bring it all back. This classic romantic idea of how it used to be. Let's make Rome great again. <laughs> Literally said that. Now, if you're Julian and you want to annoy all the Christians, what's the best way to do it? Be a friend to the Jews. True, but how do you be a... What's the... Uh, I mean, first of all, you've got to realise that he... One of the things he did, and we know this from the letters, the personal letters that he was sending to the Sanhedrin in Tiberias, that he was going to... He writes them, I'm taking all of the Jew taxes, the Fiscus, Judaicus, and all the rest of the things, and I'm... He writes, I'm literally ripping them up and I'm throwing them in the flames. The Jews are not going to get taxed anymore. We've had enough of that. But what do you really do? If you really, really want to make this point, if you really, really want to stick it to Christianity, what do you do? What do you tell the Jews? You can rebuild the temple. And we went, what? And he said, I'll say it again. You can rebuild the temple. And we didn't need a second invitation. And we started, we went back to Jerusalem. I mean, I'm the rabbi, the population of Israel, like overwhelmed. Now, this was very, very conflicting for Jews living in the Persian Empire because they all hated the Romans' guts. And if anyone was, anyone was invading Persia from Rome, the Jews, one of the reasons why Jewish communities had such good relations with the Persian authorities, because the Jews were always at the forefront of armies and fighting against the Romans. They were very, very patriotic to the Parthians and to the Sassanids for most of the time. They weren't being persecuted. They were very, very much against Rome. And why not? Rome has never shown anything but contempt for the Jewish world. But now a Roman Empire, a Roman Emperor has abolished taxes and he wants to help the Jews rebuild the temple. They were conflicted because Julian basically announces that he's going to rebuild the temple on the eve of his invasion of Persia. Now, some of you would be aware of what happened when they went to rebuild the temple. Just in case you missed that episode. You would understand, this talk is I'm trying to, it would be like trying to contract the whole of season one to season seven of Game of Thrones in a one hour talk. You have to understand this. What happened when they went to rebuild the temple? Um, they didn't build it. What happened is, and it's documented in a number of sources, not just the Talmud, but other places, is that they started clearing away the rubble and stuff at the Temple Mount, and suddenly there were explosions and huge balls of fire started jumping out. Obviously, someone from the area had forgotten to turn off the gas, and they uh, ran away. They came back the next day, and the explosions continued. Now, the Christians didn't need any prompting to say, ah, oh, divine intervention, you're not supposed to build the temple. And the Jews themselves said, looks like we're not supposed to build the temple. We don't know what that was. Some saw it as supernatural and some 
historians today still try to find natural causes for that. There was an earthquake around the same time, whatever it was, but we physically couldn't do it. And very, very soon after, Julian was killed in uh, his Persian campaign. And so we never got to find out what would have happened if Julian had come back from Persia and re-established his authority in Christian Roman Empire. Because after Julian, it's all pretty yuck. Uh, one bright spark around this time during, in Jewish history is, of course, and we talk about Chazal and the Age of Empires. This is a classic, classic uh, moment for Chazal and the Age of Empires because in the middle of, around about 358, uh, the Nasi in Israel, the head of the Sanhedrin in Israel, is a sage called Hillel. We know him as Hillel II, not to be confused with his antecedent who's living nearly 400 years earlier, who is Hillel Hazaken, Hillel the Elder, one of the early Tanaim. Hillel II was an Amora living in the land of Israel. And the Christian kings had for, for, Christian emperors had forbidden, like Constantinus and so on, had forbidden Jews from calculating the seasons, calculating the months, calculating the calendar. So Hillel II sat and using astronomical know-how, calculated the cal Jewish calendar in perpetuity. That is a tremendous summary. That is a tremendous summary. And I'm sure many of our learned audience would be able to tell me that it's not as simple as that but the basic the basic idea is that Hillel made the first kind of attempt to use advanced calculations well into the future you know how when you open um remember how when we were kids I don't know some of you are a bit young to remember this but they at the back of the machzor like for Rosh Hashanah they would always have yes, the date of Rosh Hashanah going up to some date way way in the future like 1995 or something like that you remember so um so it was a bit like that and they would uh they would he he, he built it for centuries to come there are some others that say that he also had a hand in in really establishing what was going to become the permanent solar lunar calendar this uh, where you have seven leap years, which is an extra month every 19-year cycle and so on. A lot of these things were determined and historians are still debating exactly when those things entered into it, but certainly Hillel II. And he had, we know, because go and look it up, you can, they still have, the, not us, they have the letters of Julian and his writings to the Jews and very Jewish communities and many of them are addressed to Hillel II. But after Julian... The Christian kings that followed were not nice. And then you end up towards the end of the century with someone like Theodosius. Theodosius the first. And Theodosius is really, and, 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 and he actually abolishes the whole institution of the Nasi. He said, what are the Jews doing with a, with a Davidic scion sitting as their leader? Like, what's that say about Christianity? That can't be. So he abolishes that. Gamliel VI is the last of the Nasi. That gets ended. And Theodosius is really the last emperor to sit on a unified east and west. So basically after him, it's more or less split. 
So by the time you get to the end of the fourth century. That is why, more or less, the project of the Amoraic project that had been happening in the land of Israel now comes to an end. It now comes to a conclusion. And all of their discussions on the Mishnah and their analyses and their recording and transmitting of all of the traditions that they have received and their own unique type of analysis of the Mishnah, which formed a Palestinian Gemara, comes to an end. And that is why more or less 380 to 400 marks the end of what we now call the Jerusalem Talmud. It's also called the Palestinian Talmud and perhaps, at the risk of sounding politically incorrect, perhaps that is a more accurate title because it wasn't really created in Jerusalem. It was created in what was then referred to as Palestina. But, but in Jewish tradition we call it the Talmud Yerushalmi. Now the Talmud Yerushalmi is written, apart, well, apart from the Hebrew that they're using in recording Tanaitic statements, because Tanaitic statements are in Hebrew, but the linking syntax and so on of the Jerusalem Talmud is Palestinian Aramaic of the 3rd and 4th centuries. Now, back in Babylonia, um, we have figures like Ravashi, who are reviving Surah and importantly reviving a very important institution that I'm glad that I remembered to speak about that's gone on for the last couple of centuries in various forms an institution unique to Babylonia, a Jewish institution called the Kala which was a gathering of thousands and thousands of all of the rabbinic students and sages from all over Babylonia. Remember also there was a lot of back and forth between Babylonia and Palestine on questions of rabbinics as well, back and forth. But in Babylonia was this unique situation called the Kala. And that would happen twice a year. It would happen in the month of Adar before Pesach and it would happen in the month of Elul before Rosh Hashanah. Those months were called the Yarchei Kala, the months of the Kala. They were, by all accounts, spectacular. And we don't just have accounts of them in the Talmud, because the Jews at various times came under particular forms of persecution in the late Sassanid period, because they felt that the Jews were going to the Kala in order to avoid paying taxes and so on. It became a very, very... It's like anyone been to a Limud? Yeah. yeah, you know what Limud is. So you know how in Limud UK, they have like two and a half thousand people there and they have it for a whole week. Anyone been to Limud UK? Oh, you really should go. It's amazing. Anyway, when you go there, remember what I'm telling you now, that the Kala was like Limud UK, but like times 10 on crack. And it was, it, and that at the Kala is really where Ravashi and Ravina and some of these other great sages towards the end of the Talmudic period were taking all of the remembered and transmitted discussions and analytics, particularly, particularly from the school of Rava that had been established at Machoza, 
You see, Rava had really the, was the one that really started writing these things down in analytic form. It's one thing to have these big dialectical pinpointing discussions. And he was writing them down because in Machoza, he was coming under pressure from Jews that had been influenced by Manichaeism. This is a great simplification, but it's true. And they were attacking the whole project of the Amoraim because of their aversion to institutionalization and to writing things down. And Rava therefore made an entire practice of writing down and recording all of these discussions. But it wasn't just him, it grew out of that work. And by a hundred years later, in the work of Ravashi and so on, they are really starting to write down under each Mishnah, they would take one Mishnah and they would study it for months and they would study it and they would write down all of the recordings. You know, we heard that in here, Abba Abaya said this and Rava said this and that's based on what Shmuel had said here and Rav had said here. They're going back over the last two centuries and they're writing it down. Ravashi and Ravina here are generally regarded in a general sense as the final redactors of the Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud is very different in style from the Jerusalem Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud, of course, is much longer because, not to, well, they are commenting on slightly different sections of the Mishnah as well. But the Babylonian Talmud has a more discursive and extensive style. The Jerusalem Talmud is very difficult. It's very elliptic takes years to really get used to the style, but the Babylonian Talmud, not that I'm saying it's easy, but you can get inside it and work through its language and its dialectic easier. And the Babylonian Talmud, over the course of Jewish history since then, has become the dominant halachic paradigm. I remember when I was young, I was told the very simple fact that we take the Babylonian Talmud over the Jerusalem Talmud because the rabbis in Babylonia were under less pressure and had more time to think about things. When you're young, that answer kind of works. But when you think about it now, it doesn't really work because it's not like the rabbis in, in, uh, in, in the land of Israel are going, oh, we're under pressure. We don't really have time to think. So we'll just write this. Right? No, they are both as deep as each other. It's just historical circumstances have led the Babylonian Talmud and its particular style written in Babylonian Aramaic to become the dominant halachic paradigm. Almost all of our halakha today is derived from the Babylonian Talmud. We generally only use the Jerusalem Talmud if there's issues that the Babylonian Talmud is not really talking about. And there are movements within the Jewish world today even, as there have been throughout the last thousand years, to try and bring the Jerusalem Talmud back to the fore. People are now writing Sidurim and all sorts of things based on the Jerusalem Talmud. Now, but I just want to, ouch, okay, five minutes. I just want to finish off this century because there are amazing things going to happen. Tragic things. Because in the second half of the fifth century, in the last half of the 400s, right during the time of the concluding stages of the Babylonian Talmud, and it's not the case that they said, oh, we're getting to the end of the Babylonian Talmud now, so we'd better you know, move on. It's, in retrospect, we say this was the end because things became difficult after that. They're going to get good again because Sura and Pumbadita are going to survive through to the next 500 years, which is the Gaonic period, which we spoke about last year. We did a series on the Gaonic, if you remember, and Sura and Pumbadita are going to become the real crowns of that. But here, in the last 50 years, things got very, very difficult for the Jewish people in Babylonia because 
uh, we see the rise of a number of Sassanid kings who were very, very from Zoroastrians and were pushed on very hard by the Zoroastrian priests and religious classes. And they started introducing things that had never been seen in Babylonia before that you would think would be common to the Roman Empire, such as enforcing the abolition of commandments of the Jewish people and so on, trying to really crack down on them, making Shabbat prohibited, trying to have uh, work against some of the foundational points of Judaism. It was almost impossible for them to do that because Jewish uh, communities were so entrenched in Babylonian society and were so all over Babylon, but nevertheless, they attempted to. Now, it just so happened, and I'm going to move quickly. There are a number of things we could talk about, but I just want to say this quickly, is that towards the end of the century, <laughs> there was... I mean, you've got to understand, this, just this century alone needed, needed a series in itself. But there is a very big revolution that happens in the Sassanid Empire towards the end of the 5th century, which is a religious revolution led by a new prophet called Mazdak. And Mazdak, now you, I, know, I know what you're thinking. You're going to go, why are you? I come to Caulfield Children of Thursday night to hear about some other obscure prophet of some other Gentile prophet who's doing this and doing that. These are massive, massive figures. You know, understand, while we are creating the Talmud, oh, 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 and we're not just creating the Talmud. We're not just creating the Talmud. In an environment where intellectually we're being assailed on all sides by Christianity, by Zoroastrianism, by Gnosticism, by Manichaeism, by Neoplatonism, which is a whole other philosophical school that's sweeping across the West, and now Mazdakism, or Zendicism actually, as it was called, as Mazdak series was called. We are also producing at this time this unbelievable new genre called Midrash. Now, some of you, most of you would be familiar what Midrash is. And Midrash, the classic Midrash, the classic Midrash that we know of, that is containing mostly Tanaitic material, the Midrash which is the expounding of verses of Scripture. Midrash is divided into two types. There's Agadic Midrash, which is all about the narrative parts of Torah, you know, explaining like, you know, when you say, you run someone, oh, there's a famous Midrash that says, yep, that, you know, Abraham smashed the idols in his father's shop, right? That's not in the Torah, but that's a classic example of a Midrash that might come to explain how we get from one part of the Torah to another or why certain things are happening. That's a classic type of Midrash. That's an Agadic Midrash. But you have Halachic Midrash as well, which is expounding verses in order to arrive at particular interpretations for the purpose of halachic practice. Now, a lot of that was developed in the land of Israel, but in the land of Israel, they, especially with the Agadic Midrash, they tended to separate that out from their halachic discussions. So they created the Jerusalem Talmud, but they also more or less created what we now know as the Midrash Rabbah, which is the great classic collections of Midrash of the Talmudic period. Whereas in Babylonia, it all got gashmunched together. So you're reading something in the Babylonian Talmud, 
you're deep inside a halachic discussion and suddenly they're telling you some story about some guy that goes to see the king and he finds a fish and he finds a this and he comes back and he sees this and he goes there and he's walking through a field and this happens and he goes there and oh and coming back to the halachic discussion so much less of that is going on in the Jerusalem Talmud but in the Babylonian it was all seen as one great big field of play and serious play but we are developing this incredible thing called Midrash, which is still with us today. Midrash, compilations of Midrash are going to be created again and again for the next few hundred years. Some with older material, some with later material. But that project is really getting going during that particular time. But coming back, Lahavdil to Mazdak. Mazdak is a very big reformer. Hugely popular. And Mazdak is kind to understand Mazdak, but a very unique reformer, because to understand Mazdak is to understand someone who is like Karl Marx times Gandhi times 10 on crack. <laughs> he was totally into pacifism and universal sharing of everything. And Whatever came into your head when I said everything is what he meant. This of course, this of course then starts freaking out conservative Jewish and Christian, let alone other types of communities right across. But he had a huge following and masochism was so profoundly uh, influential on Sassanid politics that in fact it cost Yazdurgid II uh, or, or uh, uh, actually, um, well, three years ago, the first, years ago, the second, and then covered the first. Serious kings were losing thrones over these massive reformations that we don't have time to go into now. Basically, in the wake, in the wake of the chaos caused by the Mazdak revolutions, right at the end of the 400s, the Exilarch Marzutra, one of the last of the Amoraim, who is based, he has a, an, who is based in the town of Machoza that we spoke about before, Machoza that had been established as a, as a, as an academy by Rava all those years before, breaks away from the rest of the whole of the Sassanid Empire and declares Machoza an independent Jewish state, right in the middle. Of Babylonia and they're not going to pay taxes and they're going to defend it and they held on to that state bearing in mind that when Marzutra did that when Marzutra did that he was 15 he ascended due to the vacuum created by the martyring of the previous generation who'd also come under pressure from the Sassanid kings he inherited the position of Resh Galuta at 15 and he creates an independent state that he holds on to for seven years until the emperor regained his throne. And then they came through and they retook Machoza and they crucified Marzutra on the bridge of Machoza. This was kind of the end of any privileges or dignities that the Jewish communities of Babylonia had for quite some time. In fact, it's going to go into a bit of an abeyance vacuum for another hundred years until the Muslims come through and Jewish life re-establishes itself in that area era during the Gaonic period.
the Amoraim were followed at the very end of this period by a period we know as the Savoraim, who were the real final kind of textual editors, just cosmetically fixing things up and linking things together. But basically the Talmud as we know it was produced at the end of this era. Sometimes, and it hasn't been said by me, it's been said by many people in the past, and also not only that, but it's said in even potentially in Torah itself, that the Jewish people don't, don't go looking for trouble. We don't want troubles. We don't want persecutions. But sometimes it seems that we produce our greatest products and spiritual contributions during phases of our history where we have come under enormous pressure. This is, a, as I, I, I said at the beginning, look at the board, right? This is a complex period and we have only hovercrafted over it. But if any of it interests you, I urge you to go into great depth. But the real equation, if we come away with it, is this. The Mishnah plus Gemara equals Talmud. And because that project of discussing the Mishnah happened in both Babylonia and in Persia, we therefore have two Talmuds, but it's the one Mishnah. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is more or less creates the Talmudic period. So thank you for listening to that. And I'm sorry I went a few minutes over. Um, once again, uh, and, I, and I did feel pain last week when I remembered a couple of things. I didn't even talk last week and the week before about Adiabene and the Jewish kingdom that was happening there right in the middle of the, uh, of the Parthian Empire. But we will come back and uh, maybe look at that uh, another time in more detail. Thank you again for coming out tonight and for listening to us, uh, able to go into some of this detail, which people very, very often don't know about the geopolitical environment and context to what is actually happening when we talk about the Talmud. Thank you for listening. To find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.